It is uh, the time of year and then also just where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We started in February of 2013 working our way through the Gospel of Mark and have taken a number of breaks and now we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark and kind of leading up to on Easter Sunday, which is not too far from now, we'll be uh, at the end of the Gospel of Mark seeing the resurrection of Jesus. But before we get to the resurrection, we see a number of ugly events. And as you recall, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark moves very, very quickly. Uh, But then all of a sudden towards the end here, really Mark chapter 11 and following, the last third of the book, takes place all in one week. And so we're, we're, that's kind of where we're at now. We're in, we're in uh, probably late night Thursday, maybe after midnight Friday, so early Friday morning from the week in which Jesus will be put to death and now even probably the day in which Jesus will be put to death. Last week we left with Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and we saw the struggle of the disciples to stay awake and pray and we saw the struggle of Jesus as he asked the Father, as, as Jesus started to comprehend or started, started to, to recall what it was that he had come to do. He didn't just come to die. He came to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. And because of that, he would bear the wrath of the Father for our sins. And so he asked the Father, he says, if, this, if it's possible, will this cup, the cup was the symbol of God's wrath, pass from me? Jesus was struggling, we saw last week. But as we saw, it seemed at the end of the passage in verses 41 and 42, that Jesus had made up his mind to submit himself to the Father and to the Father's plan. And so the sentence I used last week was this, Jesus refused to take a way out so that he could become for us a way out. And now today, we're going to see the opposition come in full force. And a couple of questions we're going to look at is this. One, how will Jesus respond when the opposition finally comes in full force against him? And number two, how will the disciples respond when the opposition comes? And some questions that will come for us out of that are this. How will we respond to opposition? Will we stand up and try to fight in our own strength? Or will we flee in fear when opposition comes, how will we respond? I think God has something for us this morning, as He always does when we open up His Word. And so if you're able to, uh, if you brought your Bible with you, you can open up to Mark chapter 14, start, starting in verse 43. And then if you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word? It'll be on the screen behind me as well. From Mark 14, starting in verse 43, the Word of the Lord says this, And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. God, we do believe uh, that as your people gather together, uh, some amongst those here, uh, certainly being people that you have adopted into your family through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, others that, that are just exploring, trying to understand what it is uh, that the Bible teaches, who it is that Jesus actually is. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work to do the work that you need to do in this place this morning. For some of us, we're going to need conviction to happen. For some of us, we're going to need encouragement. Uh, whatever it is that you need to do, I pray that you would be pleased to do it now as we dig a bit deeper into your word and see what it is that you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right, as usual, we have inside the bulletin, just to kind of guide you along in the sermon, uh, uh, well, that's not it, this uh, right here is an outline of the sermon, and so the little spot for you to take notes, if that's helpful for you to follow along, and then, uh, and then also, as usual, a discussion guide, so that as you gather in your life groups and homes throughout the week, uh, you can dig a bit deeper to see how this part of God's Word actually applies to the lives that you're living right now, wherever you're living then. So, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 47, we see the opposition show up. Now, just a little bit of context. If you haven't been with us through this whole journey of Mark, or even if you have because it's taken so long, you might need a reminder that we knew this was coming, right? If you're somebody who's been reading through the Gospel of Mark, we knew that this was coming. Very recently, in Mark 14, verses 10 to 11, we read this, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Right? So, so we know that there was this plan in place that Judas had gone in order to betray Jesus. He had gone to some leaders who also wanted to see Jesus dead. And they gave him some money so that he could betray him. And then they were just waiting for the right time. So we knew that this was coming. The other disciples also knew that it was coming. You remember that? Just a couple of weeks ago in Mark 14, verse 20, wait, verse 18. Verse 18, you can look at Mark 14, verse 18, where it says, And as they were reclining at the table and eating, this is the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Okay? So, so the events that I just read about that we're going to look at today, this is not... This is not a total surprise to us as readers of the Mark, Gospel of Mark, and it's not a surprise to the disciples, because they were told, one of you is going to betray me. I don't know that they knew who it was, but they knew one would. And so we see it happening now in verse 43. Let's look at verse 43. Here's what verse 43 says. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Okay, a couple of things just to, to help us understand, because when we're reading a narrative like this, we want to feel like we're there. We want to kind of get a picture of what this might look like. Remember, uh, it's uh, because of the time of year, there is a, a full moon. It's a clear night, most likely, so there's, there's a little bit of light, but it's the middle of the night. It's dark, and they're in a garden. 
Jesus had just gotten done praying to his father with his disciples nearby. And here now they're together in this garden still. And a crowd shows up. The crowd consists most likely, it says, of people. Well, it says for sure they're people sent from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. That's called the Sanhedrin. Okay, So the group of religious leaders sends this group out, probably consisting of the temple police. And John's gospel also tells us that Roman soldiers were also included in this crowd. Okay, So this is a, a crowd, a big group of people, and they're intimidating. Because did you see what they're carrying? They're carrying swords and clubs. Okay, So middle of the night, it's dark, they're in a garden, and a crowd comes, including Roman soldiers and people sent from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they're coming out to this garden with swords and clubs to confront Jesus and his disciples. Clear that there's going to be some opposition here. And in verses 44 and 45, we see Judas follow through with his wicked plan. Verses 44 and 45. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. For those that have been in the church and maybe heard this over and over again, it starts to lose a little bit of its uh, shock value. But if if you stop again and think about what just happened, Judas, I don't know. Uh, If you put yourself there, I don't know if you're one of the disciples, if they had figured out by now that Judas was going to be the one. Or if when they saw him walking up with the crowd, they were shocked. I don't know. But Judas comes with this crowd, and the way in which he betrays Jesus is almost mocking. We're going to see a lot of mocking of Jesus coming up here pretty soon. But as he approaches Jesus, the sign that he chooses to use to show the crowd which one that Jesus is, they'd seen him many times, but now it's dark, and they just wanted to be sure. And so... So Judas comes with this sign, and he comes up to Jesus, and there doesn't seem to be any hesitation. It doesn't seem like Judas is having second thoughts. It's like this is what he wanted to do, and now he's going at it, because it says he came up to him at once. Did you see that? came up to him at once, and he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, or more literally, my great one. Jewish Disciples would follow a teacher or a rabbi, and they would refer to that rabbi as rabbi or my great one. And so here Judas is doing one of the most wicked things that's ever been done in the history of humankind. And he comes up to Jesus and calls him rabbi, and then he kisses him. And the word there for kiss is not the word for kind of like the normal kiss of greeting that people would do. It's a word for a more intense kind of kiss. The kind, and so uh, it's the word that we see in Luke 7. You might remember in Luke 7, uh, there was this woman who believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And so she washes his feet uh, with her tears and, and anoints them with oil. And then it says that she kissed his feet. That's the word here. This, this woman is in Luke 7 kissing uh, incessantly. Uh, as an act of worship, and that's the same word. It's not normally the word used for kissing, but that's the same word used here when Judas comes to betray Jesus. Such 
such contrast in what he's actually doing and the words that he's using and the actions that he's taking doesn't seem to fit, doesn't seem to make sense. And then the result is verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This word seized shows up four times in this passage. It says in verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. Again, we knew that this time was coming. Right? This had been a plot for quite some time. Way back in Mark 3, so this was probably like two summers ago. We were back in Mark chapter 3, and we saw in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. There has been opposition against Jesus from the onset of his ministry. Right? And so so now this opposition, which has kind of always been, they didn't quite know how to do it. Now the moment has come where Jesus has finally been physically seized. Many other times they were around Jesus and didn't do anything. They made threats, but now he's actually arrested. He's seized. Okay, we see that in verse 46. And then in verse 47, an interesting verse. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now, in the other Gospels, we'll find out that this is this disciple is Peter. We'll find out that Jesus is going to rebuke Peter for doing that. We'll find out that Jesus is going to heal this person. But in Mark's Gospel, Mark's always very straight to the point. He doesn't share all the details that everybody else does. He just says, the disciple came and cut off the guy's ear. Right? Very simple. He's unnamed in the Gospel of Mark. But as I was looking at this, I just, I couldn't help but get over the, if you, again, put yourself in this situation, how futile this seems to be, right? There is this group of powerful people sent by powerful people wielding swords and clubs, and here is a small group of disciples along with Jesus. One of them has some some type of sword or dagger with him. It's Peter, and he takes it out. He's like, I'm going to do something about this, and All he does is cut off one guy's ear. Whole big mob of angry people ready to put them to death. And all Peter can do is cut off one guy's ear. Remember the disciples. It was just over the last couple weeks we saw their arrogant attitude when Jesus told them, you're all going to fall away. Remember their attitude? Like, I can handle this. Come on, Jesus. We we got this. Don't worry about us. We're going to be fine. Remember we talked about how dangerous that kind of attitude is? That, that, that kind of, hey, I can handle this, I got this, Jesus kind of attitude? I'm seeing that kind of being played out here as Peter takes out his dagger and takes off the ear of one person in the mob. And as I think about how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? The question I think we should ask ourselves is, do we think we have what it takes to stand up against the opposition? when the opposition is strong. I posted an article because I had read this article uh, and so, so shared it on Facebook and a number of you I saw had read this article this week. And the article was called Parenting Means Wrestling Demons. In it, the case was made that one of the reasons that parenting is so hard is because we have a real enemy, Satan, who hates kids. So if parents are seeking to raise kids to know and to trust and to worship Jesus, they're seeking to do that in the world that we live in today, 
parenting is going to be hard. And this is where I thought maybe like a parent would say like amen or something like that out there. All right? But, but it's true. Parenting is hard. And so the author of that said this. He said, this calls for a shift in our perspective as parents. If we get into the work of parenting with a precious moment's romanticism, it won't be long before despair sets in. It's just too hard if we think it's going to be easy. It's essential to know, especially when the going gets tough, that we're fighting against hell. And one of the things that I think this reality does, that, that as we look at even, even something that seems um, as, as non-threatening as the task of parenting, or as a church, as we have a number of kids in our church, that this task that we have as a church family to raise up kids who, who know the truth, who, who know and worship and, and trust Jesus, got to recognize that that this work is not a work that's an easy work and it's not a work that we can do on our own it's a work that drives us to prayer right and we ought to be much more often than we do for our kids the forces of evil that are attacking our kids are not just things out there right uh the the scripture talks about kind of having three enemies and so we think of what what are kids dealing with in the world that we live in today Well, first of all, they're dealing with their own sinful flesh. Scripture clearly teaches that all of us are sinners. And so so we have a a, a tendency to drift towards sin without anybody even teaching that to us. You, you, You take that enemy along with the fact that we do live in a world that increasingly is telling our kids lies. A world that is increasingly messed up and a hard world to grow up in. Almost everybody can say, hey, it's harder to be a kid today than it was when I was a kid. The world makes it hard for our kids to grow up to know and worship and love Jesus. And then we also have a very real enemy, an unseen enemy. Spiritual forces of evil at work in the heavenly realms. All of these things help us to realize how meteorologists, I'm looking at this. Anything we're trying to do our, on our own is like trying to chop the ear off of one person in a mob. It's just, it's just not, it's just we don't have what it takes on our own. And so we need to come together as a church family. That's part of what we're going to be praying about tomorrow night. As we get together as a church family to pray, we're going to be praying for kids. We're going to be praying for parents. If you're a parent and you're parenting and you're going to look around, and you're like, it looks like everybody else is doing fine. And we're, no, they're not. If people have kids, it's a struggle. And so we need to, as parents, humble ourselves and come to each other and say, hey, how have you dealt with this? Can you pray for me about this? And then then we need to ask for other people to be praying for our kids. Uh, We just need to be in prayer together, uh, recognizing that, that the enemy that is opposing us and opposing our kids is much bigger than we think. And all we got the dagger to cut somebody's ear off with if we're trying to do it alone. All right. Verses 48 and 49. Verses 48 and 49, we see Jesus submit. Look at verse 48. Jesus said to them, have you, come out ag- have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Right, we've seen that happen. Jesus is just telling them what's happened. But then Jesus says this, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. I love how right here, again, in this setting, you've got, you've got people who are powerful, sent from powerful people, and they're holding displays of their power and authority. they got swords, they got clubs, 
And Jesus is showing them that he's still in charge. He's showing them, I still, we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has complete authority. And here still, we see Jesus in complete authority. And he tells them, well, here's what's happened. He says, you go ahead and take me. But it's not because of their strength, it's because he's willing. Because he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knows this is the reason for which he was sent. He came to die. And he knows that this is the time. And so he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. I don't know what scriptures he might have been talking about. Earlier he, he quoted from Zechariah. And, uh, and he said, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Maybe he was thinking about that. Maybe more than likely he had at least somewhere in his mind the prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah from 700 years earlier had prophesied in Isaiah 53 this. He said, one who will come is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was, a, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus came to die. He was about to be afflicted, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be treated unfairly, and to bear the Father's wrath for our sins. The time had come, and Jesus goes willingly. Now, again, put yourself in this scene. Imagine yourself as a disciple. You're seeing all of this take place. you got to be thinking right now, we're losing. Right? We're, we're losing. The, the opposition seems so big and so intimidating. And here we are, a little group of just a few disciples and Jesus, and they just took him. We thought he was the Messiah, the king who was going to come and set us free, and now they have him. He's been arrested, and we're powerless to do anything about it. They've got to be thinking, uh-oh, we lost. Application for us in this is, I think, this. We need to trust Jesus when evil seems to be winning. We need to trust Jesus when evil seems to be winning. Because it seems, certainly in this case, like evil seems to be winning, but we also can see that Jesus is still in charge. This week I was at... Uh, spent a couple of days with Ron and Linda and many other people at our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America Central District Annual Conference. Um, and so that's like 12 words to describe where I was. Uh, but, but we were there for a couple of days this week, and a number of things that people said stuck out to me. But one thing that stuck out as it relates to this was somebody got up, and I can't remember who it was. I can't remember what the context was. But they just let us know, hey, listen. God is not intimidated. God's not intimidated. So, so fill in the blank with whatever comes after that. God is not intimidated by terrorism. God is not intimidated by Vladimir Putin. God is not intimidated by the moral and cultural shift that's taking place in the United States of America. God is not intimidated by the power of ISIS. Because our God is sovereign. And so, so even in this moment where it seems that that is is weak and he's being taken away he's doing so willingly he's in charge not intimidated by the crowd this is what he came for and so he says let the scriptures be fulfilled later on in, in the book of acts when peter's preaching remember he's there watching all this he gets this a lot better later he gets a lot of stuff better later and in acts 2 he's preaching and he says this, Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
He gets it later. He gets a, this, this was part of the plan. This, this Jesus being delivered up that he was witnessing right here, right now it's freaking him out, so he's cutting ears off, right? But later he's going to look back and he's going to say, I get it. Jesus was still in charge. It was time. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan to bear our sins and to take on the Father's wrath in our place like we talked about last week. Jesus didn't try to fight. Jesus didn't try to escape. Jesus willingly goes with this mob of sinners who are bent on his destruction. One thing we can do, we can just praise God that Jesus responded to the opposition in this way. But then I said the second thing we're going to look at this morning is, but what did the disciples do? We saw how Jesus responds when this opposition comes up against him. But how do the disciples respond? Look at verses 50 to 52. Remember, just a little context. We looked at last week, verse 27. If you look back just a little bit, verse 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Right? So we were told in verse 27, hey, this is going to happen. The disciples are all going to flee. They're all going to fall away. They all said, no, we're fine, remember? But then not long after, hours later, they're still in the garden. Opposition showed up. One disciple tries to fight. Jesus has been seized. And the disciples, I'm sure, know that they're next. And so what do they do? Verse 50. Verse 50 is a sad verse. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And they all left him and fled. Those who just just a little bit ago stood and said, Hey, if, he, if I need to die with you, I will not deny you. That's what Peter said. And then it said in verse 31, if you look back at verse 31, all of them said the same. They all said, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Just a little bit ago, that's what they said. And now the opposition shows up, and verse 50 says, And they all left him and fled. Then verses 51 and 52, it's kind of interesting, right? Mark, uh, Mark doesn't include many things that the other gospel writers don't include. Most of what Mark includes, the other gospel writers include as well, Matthew and, and uh, Luke especially. But this... This little spot, it only shows up in Mark's gospel. And you kind of read it like, well, it's kind of a little bit funny. Like, should I be laughing at this? It's a little bit, little bit, what, what's going on here? It says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Okay, so, so people that were more wealthy, they wore more layers of clothing. And so this is the kind of undergarments. Um, somebody left in a hurry, I guess, to, to follow Jesus and the disciples out to the garden. They were with him, just kind of wearing the undergarments, the linen cloth about his body, and they sought to seize him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Huh. So, like, why, why, is, why is that there? This person isn't, isn't named. Now, you might even, if you got, like, a study Bible, it's got study notes, uh, or, or maybe you've heard this before. There, there's been a lot of speculation from very early on that very well could be true, but we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say for sure. A lot of speculation says this is Mark himself, the author of this gospel. Remember, the author of this gospel, Mark, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Um, but they kind of say that, that maybe this is his way of kind of putting his signature on here. Like, hey, I, I was there for this. And, and it would make sense because he seems to have come from a wealthy family. And so it, we don't know. 
We don't know who this is. I think it's there, though, to underline the fact that everybody left. Not just the 12 disciples, but even this other person that showed up. We don't even know who it is. But when he says everybody left, even this guy. So scared for his life that he's willing to run away naked. Right? So, so here they go. Everybody's gone. You know what happened in verses 50 to 52? The going got tough, and the tough got gone. Right? That's what happened. The going got tough, and the tough, those who thought they were tough, remember, I'm not going to do it. I'm fine. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Those guys who said that, now they're running. Application. Application. We'll kind of spend our, our last moments together application because, you know, our tendency, we read the Bible. It's easy for us. Maybe, uh, maybe, you're, not, maybe you're not prideful like me, but I, I, read, I read Scripture, and I tend to, if I'm going to relate to somebody in a story, I try to relate to the hero, like I'm, right? So we, lead, we read David and Goliath. Well, I'm David, right? I'm, I'm the little guy who wins, played giants with stones, right? Uh, we read the book of Daniel, Daniel, and we see the way that he's standing up to the, to the Babylonian Empire. And we're like, yeah, I'm Daniel. I'm that, right? We, we always relate to the hero. But we come to this passage. We know the hero in this passage. I think really the hero in all passages of Scripture is Jesus. But here, we know that we're certainly not Jesus. And so if we relate to anybody in this passage, it has to be the disciples, Right? And so as we think about who do we relate, relate to in this passage, we see really three options. One is we can be part of the opposition, right? That's one way to respond to Jesus, that you're part of the crowd with swords and clubs that's opposing Jesus. Another option would be that you're the betrayer, that maybe you're somebody who seemed to know Jesus really well and even follow him for a period of time, but in the end you've turned your back. Or maybe there's the third option, I think that's where most of us fall, and that is that we are followers who, when opposition comes, we get a little bit scared and we run away. I think most of us can relate there. But again, it might be that some of you um, are, are part of the opposition. I don't know um, if that's kind of where you're at, just so you, just so you know, because I, I want to be truthful. That's one thing we always want to do here as a church, that when God's Word says even hard things, we want to go ahead and say what it says. Um, and there's hard things. If you are a part of a group who opposes Jesus, if you are a part of the group that's, that's opposed to Jesus, you will one day, even though maybe right now you might feel like you're in the majority and you've got power because you've got your sword, your club, your job, your reputation, whatever it is that you think displays your power and authority to the world, you will one day, all of us, stand before Jesus who is the judge. And he will display his power because he is just. And so, kind of a hard passage in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so these men in this group opposing Jesus who think that they have the power, they think they're winning, they think, well, we got him, they arrested him. They're the ones that think they have it all together. There will come a day in which even those who think that they're very powerful, that they are in charge. You remember that, uh, that poem, Invictus? That movie was kind of kind of cool to watch. I watched that movie one time. Um, but at the end of that poem, there's, there's that uh, line, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you're like, oh, yeah, go get him. You're like, wait, hold on. That's not true. Right? That's not true. I'm not the master of my fate. I, I don't get to determine what happens with like, I'm not the master of my fate. There is one who is. There is a righteous judge. And so you can stand up and act as powerful as you want in this world. One day you're going to stand before the judge who truly is powerful and who is always right and always just. We need to know that if you're a part of the crowd who opposes Jesus. There, there are also some who maybe in this passage would relate mostly to Judas. That, that, that you've been around, maybe you're a regular church attender, you've been around the church most of your life, but, but you've been kind of riddled with all sorts of different doubts and things like that. And so, so your response has been, you know what, I just don't think I believe all this anymore. And you're about ready to just throw it away. And just take whatever the world has to offer you. He got 30 pieces of silver. He was good with that, it seems. I don't want you to be there either. But I think where most of us can probably relate to, like I said in this passage, is we're probably the fearful followers who flee under pressure. It's easy to be courageous when your team is winning, isn't it? Yeah, I like sports. You, you, watch, you watch sports, and, uh, and usually... The guys who are talking the most trash are the guys who are on the winning team, right? Because it's easy to be courageous and a little bit kind of like puff up your chest and show them what you're all about when your team is winning, right? But when it seems like your team is losing, it kind of gets quiet. You see that even, even just watching a whole crowd, right? Whole crowd, maybe they're, maybe they're you know, earlier this week, the first half of the Iowa State Cyclones game, the crowd's probably pretty quiet. Right? Like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're getting beat. But then all of a sudden, and they're not doing anything different. All they're, they're just like eating popcorn and watching a, watching a game. But all of a sudden, the crowd comes to life when, when five guys on the court start performing a little bit better. And all of a sudden, the crowd just gets behind them, and the crowd's loud like, oh, yeah. Now you can be courageous and, and, because our team's winning. Right? When your team's not winning, it's easy to flee. Uh, the, the, the district superintendent actually left our, our we got done on uh, Monday night and he came back and he said on Tuesday morning, he said, we got done with our meeting in time on Monday night uh, and I had tickets to the game. So he said, so I went in at halftime, went in at halftime to, uh, to the, and he said, I was going in and a bunch of people were walking out. And I said, what you walking out for is halftime. They said, the game's over, right? And he said, well, I got tickets, I'm going to go. And he went and watched, you know, this, this great comeback by Iowa State. Uh, in the second half. And so, so that idea that, 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 that when we're losing, it's easy to just walk out, right? We see our team losing, and we can easily just kind of throw up our hands and say, I guess we lost. We're done. Going back to the car, right? But what about when opposition looks really strong and it looks like we're losing? Because I think that's the situation that the disciples are facing here. They're looking at this like Jesus just got arrested. 
and thinking that we're losing. Jesus says this, listen, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you share that message in the world that we live in today, you're going to face opposition. If you share the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, you'll be called narrow-minded and exclusive. Right? And so, so if, if you're going to accurately teach what the Bible teaches and proclaim what the Bible proclaims, you're going to face opposition. As followers of Jesus, the most important thing for us to communicate to other people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive. It's offensive to tell people that they're offensive to God. Right? That's, that's offensive to other people. And so our challenge is to figure out how to proclaim it accurately, but also because I think some Christians get a little bit too crazy and they forget about sensitivity and compassion and love motivating our proclamation of the gospel, right? So how do we do both of those things? How do we, how do we not water it down? How do we face the opposition that there is to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? I just started reading um, this book. It just came out. I'd recommend it to you. Um, it's, uh, well, I guess. I mean, I read two chapters. Uh, Maybe the rest of it I don't like, and then, then I just recommended a bad book. But, uh, but it's uh, by David Platt. It's called A Compassionate Call to Counterculture. And then the subtitle's long. In a world of poverty, same-sex marriage, racism, sex slavery, immigration, persecution, abortion, orphans, pornography. Right? And so he's just going to address each of those things in this book. And as I've read through the beginning part of that book, he says the primary call for us as Christians is to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to stand up for more than any other thing. We need to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's other things we need to stand up for as well. And so, interesting, I, I like the way he says it. He says, he says at this one spot, he says this, On popular issues like poverty and slavery, where Christians are likely to be applauded for our social action, we are quick to stand up and speak out. Yet, on controversial issues like homosexuality and abortion, where Christians are likely to be criticized for our involvement, we're stay quiet. Because the truth is, when we see the threat of opposition, like the disciples were seeing in the Garden of Gethsemane on that night, and it looks like the crowd is strong and big and powerful, and we feel like we're now this little minority. Right? What do we do with that? What do we do with that? We can't look at these disciples who all, verse 50, they all left him and fled. We can't look at the disciples and shake our heads and say, those silly disciples. I can't believe. Because if we did that, we'd have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, silly me. That, that I, for a moment, would even doubt would even doubt that, that the God that I'm standing with is less powerful than the crowd that seems to be standing against him, right? We need to keep that in mind. How many times, listen, this is for me too, how many times have you avoided talking about an important issue because the opposition seems strong and you're scared of what people might think? How many times have you avoided sharing the gospel with somebody because you're afraid of the kind of opposition you might get from them. 
Church, if we are in Christ, we are among the undeserving, vile, wretched sinners. And our only hope is that we have been forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Christ. That's a message that needs to be believed by us. And it's a message that needs to be proclaimed by us. And it's an offensive message. It's a message to, like I said, it's offensive to tell people that they're offensive to God. Scripture calls the message of the cross foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. It's in 1 Corinthians 1. When we understand and believe that, when we trust Jesus, we know the good news. That in Christ, we stand as people who are just as messed up as everybody else. We're not any better than anybody else because we've done anything different. We're just different because we've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. And we have the hope of living in eternity with Jesus forever because of the work that He's done, not because of the work that we've done. Because Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan. We see that in this passage. And He died for our sins so we can live with great hope and worship Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our only hope. That's my only hope. I don't stand up here because I have it all figured out and everybody else just needs to get with the program. I stand up here because I was dead in my transgression and sin. The the way that I thought was, was so conformed to the way the rest of the world thought. I was messed up. Not because I deserved it, but only because of your grace and for your glory. You, you, did, you did a work in my heart causing me to be born again through repentance and, and trust in Jesus. And God, I pray that, that would be a work that you would do amongst people here this morning. And for, for those of us that, 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 that you've done that work in, God, would you help us? Because it's hard. We need your help to boldly proclaim the truth, especially the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need your help to do that because the opposition seems to be strong. It seems to be growing. But God, we are so thankful that we worship you, a God who's not intimidated by anything. So God, help us to, to know because we're on your side, because you've, you've called us to yourself. You've adopted us as your own. We belong to you. and We don't need to fear anything. You know, the ugliest thing is not stuff that's out there, but it's the sin that exists in our own hearts. And I thank you for the good news that we've been saved from that through faith in Jesus. I'm grateful for it. And so I pray that even as we sing this closing song, that we would sing out of just a sense of great desperation and great thanksgiving for the work that you've done in us that we didn't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.